You're listening to However Improbable, a Sherlock Holmes book club that narrates and discusses Arthur Conan Doyle's classic tales. I'm Sarah Cole. And I'm Marissa Mercurio. This week, we're bringing you our very first case file on a Sherlock Holmes pastiche. Stories that are about Sherlock Holmes, and often in Arthur Conan Doyle style, but not written by him. And we're starting with a special one. The House of Silk by renowned mystery novelist Anthony Horowitz, the only pastiche to have the stamp of approval by the Conan Doyle estate. Published in 2011, The House of Silk received critical accolades. The Washington Post called it a, quote, altogether terrific period thriller and one of the best Sherlockian pastiches of our time. Beyond his home series, his novel Moriarty is a take on the infamous arch-villain. Horowitz is best known for his Alex Ryder series, The Magpie Murders, and his extensive TV mystery writing. He wrote stuff like Foil's War and Perot and lots of Agatha Christie. So he, you mm-hmm. know, he's famous for... He's for entrenched. Kind of yes. Interestingly, the Conan Doyle estate reached out to Horowitz to write this pastiche, not the other way around. They asked him to do it. He didn't get approval from them. Today we are going to chat about how the novel holds up as a home story and its own merits as a novel. But before we get started, we should note, first of all, that this is not a spoiler-free space. If you want to read the book first before you hear us spoil a plot, stop here. Also, this book deals with some pretty heavy stuff that may not be great to hear about for some people. It spans the pretty gruesome murder of a child, kidnapping, pedophilia, and childhood sexual assault. Woof. Mm. And we're going to discuss those things in our chat today. So there's your content warning for where this is going. Uh, Do you want to start with a quick summary of the plot? It's quite winding, so I'm going to do a very (laughs) brief summary as much as I possibly can and just note a couple of things that happen. So writing retrospectively, an elderly Watson writes after Holmes's recent death. Looking back on a particularly scandalous case, Watson reflects on his life with Holmes. After looking into an art theft, Holmes discovers a web of corruption that leads him to the House of Silk, a criminal operation that facilitates the kidnapping and sexual trafficking of disadvantaged boys for wealthy and powerful men. A lot happens in between the innocuous start and the downfall of the House of Silk. There's Irish gangs, the Baker Street Irregulars, a couple murders, of course, Holmes' own imprisonment and subsequent escape, and undercover operations. Along the way, we also encounter a mildly antagonistic Mycraft, a sly Moriarty, and Dr. Percy Trevelyan, who you might remember from our episode on The Resident Patient. All this comes back round to Watson in the present day, who simply misses Holmes. The novel concludes, as Watson imagines, he hears Holmes playing his ultra-various violin just for him. It's a heavy one. Yes. It's sad. It's sad and thrilling and really dark. It's so dark. Maybe we should start with with this concept of the fact that it was requested Mm -hmm. by the estate, and then that's the plot of the novel. Uh, Yeah, what do you think about that? Does that change your relationship to wanting to read a pastiche? To know that it's got the Doyle stamp of approval? It doesn't change my mind. I don't think I would... I certainly would not seek out a Doyle-approved 
pastiche <laughs> for the fact that it's Doyle approved. Some um, people would, I do think. I, yeah, um, I mean, like, that's fair. Yeah. It just doesn't affect me personally because they're so nitpicky about everything. Right. And so I don't really care what they think. Anthony Horowitz is a very famous crime writer and mystery writer, and that is why. I sought the novel out, and mm-hmm. it's very famous. It's a very famous pastiche. So the Conan Doyle estate having, you know, their little their little stamp on the cover, really has nothing to do with my interest. Although I think it changes the context a little bit, sure. and I think it's interesting from a publication standpoint. Um, and also, like you said, what it means about the content of the story, both in terms of the way that Watson feels very complicated feelings throughout mm-hmm. the story about his involvement with Holmes and the work that they did in London and living in London in the Victorian era and the politics surrounding that. Totally. But then also, like you said, just like how incredibly dark the story is. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I can imagine, you know, it's, it's kind of a big win. You're the Doyle estate. You're like, I want a famous modern crime writer who's, you know, really well known to publish something that we're going to ask him to do. He turns around and comes back with this. I'd be like, um, yeah, well, <laughs> okay. The darkness to it, but then also the framework mm-hmm. that he employs here is in itself dark, right? I mean, Holmes is dead at the beginning yeah. of the story, which is yes. we never, we, we very seldomly get those kinds of stories. And to have the stamp of approval on a text in which Holmes is not killed off, but maybe off stage a little bit, is really odd to me. I think it works wonderfully in the story. I really, I think it really tugs at the heartstrings. You see a lot of pastiches where Watson is writing from the period of time where he believed Holmes was dead Mm -hmm. in the middle of their lives, but Holmes wasn't. But this is the only example I can think of that. Watson's quite elderly. Mm -hmm. Holmes has died of old age. And so there really is this sort of lack of inhibition about what he's going to publish um, in that framework, which I think is very interesting and very different. Everything is going to be tinged with a certain sense of nostalgia, but also maybe like clear headedness. Yes. In that, I think that's, you know, he's not sort of romanticizing or serializing this republication. He is just looking back at something that happened, Mm -hmm. which changes. I think you see that. I mean, in the subject of the story and then Watson sort of commentates a little throughout, which I think is nice and works really well. Yeah, I I think that Horowitz's most successful rendering of Watson in this novel is those moments when he dips out of the narrative as an older man and reflects on his life, where he disrupts the narrative a little bit and he'll say, like, good lord, I can't believe the way that Victorian London treated its children. What was my involvement in this? What was Holmes's involvement with employing the Baker Street Irregulars? Mm-hmm. Which now, you know, having this new TV show, the Irregulars, directly commenting on that, which right. I think is interesting because when we planned to cover this story, that wasn't really on our minds. And then no, we found out that the Irregulars was happening and that it was engaging this idea of, is it ethical to do this, you know, to employ these children? And it's something that Holmes struggles with a lot in this story because of the death of one of the boys, Ross. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting thread to pull that doesn't really get questioned in the canon. No, not at all. Um, And that people tend to think about that 
as either sort of this like charming quirk or that Holmes is being charitable and helping these, you know, they're street kids who don't really have anywhere else to make money. Um, but in this story, you see the impact of their involvement with him and his, you know, adult dangerous life that he's not thinking how that's going to play out. Um, it's very real, very emotional. It's really troubling for both of the characters. I think they're kind of profoundly disturbed by how things play out. And it feels like the weight of that feels very real in a way that I think is really great. Yeah, it's it's taking an interesting angle of the canon material and making you think about it in a way that the canon never asks you to, which I think is really effective. Yeah, and I think that's the mark of a good pastiche as well. Totally. I mean, there is a certain level of enjoyment where you can just read new stories that are Sherlock Holmes stories, and I want that because once you run out of the 60 stories, it's like, of course you want to go read more, and you seek that out, but at some point, there's something more complex and more provocative and more satisfying to read stories or watch adaptations that contest the canon Mm -hmm. in some way. And I can't really think of another pastiche that looks at that particular sort of ethical issue in the same Mm -hmm. way that this one does. Right. And of course, that is mirrored with the House of Silk itself. Holmes, Mm. by no means, is as immoral or unethical in employing the Baker Street Irregulars. That's what happens. Like, that's not what I'm saying. It's not a direct comparison. But there is this thread of exploring childhood in the 19th century in this text that very few others are willing to explore. The plot is certainly a lot darker than where any of the canon material goes. I mean, maybe you sort of inch towards something like this in the Speckle Band or in um, the Cardboard Box, but, you know. This is so nowhere. beyond that. Yeah. Yes. And it's quite clear and explicit. Yes. when They don't beat around the bush about what's happening. Yes. When Watson, like the... the The moments when Watson enters the House of Silk at the climax Mm -hmm. of the novel and he realizes what he's walked into is horrifying. Yeah. Yes. It's really compelling, though, because Watson, you know, who is really defined by his goodness, is thrown into this completely amoral, horrific situation. And then he is forced to grapple with it. In other stories or in other pastiches, a plot twist like that could be very sensational. Mm-hmm. in a way that's not effective. I think it works here because it's given, like, it's appropriately horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, and the characters realize it's appropriately horrific and it's handled with the, like, no, this is so messed up. Watson's response is very visceral, which yes. was also my response the first time reading it. Like, ah, I kind of uh, knew this was coming, but oh my God, it's mm-hmm. so horrible. Right. And that is given the weight that it deserves, which mm-hmm. I think makes it work. Where other writers or in other stories, it could be like, well, I kind of feel like, you're trying to shock, shock me. value a little bit. Right. The way that Holmes and Watson both contemplate, both within the context of the story and then outside of the narration that Watson is writing from, mm. struggling with those ideas um, and their relationship to children helps build that up so that we are not prepared for it, but that it doesn't come out of nowhere and that those questions right. don't come out of nowhere. Right. Yeah, it's... An interesting because, I mean, clearly it's obviously a mystery, but it's definitely a thriller. The scene where they're chasing the other cart through the snow towards the, at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's really good. It's a really great, like, kind of fast-paced action sequence. Yeah, and the Sometimes whole... Sometimes it feels very cinematic. Holmes's trial and then his escape oh, yeah. from prison is so uh-huh. fun. It's so good. 
Um, but then there are, it inches towards a horror at moments too. There's such a great moment when Watson is watching Holmes's trial. He thinks about in his work with Holmes that he has never thought through to the point of trials or he right. seldomly does. He thinks about the apprehension or the bringing to justice of the criminals or to the clients, you know, that they have. But then he doesn't think about the effects of putting someone on trial or putting someone to death. Mm-hmm. He and, and he's a little mm-hmm. bit stunned by it. You know, it's a little bit of a, a shockwave to him. Yeah. yeah, that moment is really good. It's really powerful. Yeah, he's yeah. like thinking about the consequences of the work that he does with Holmes in a way that he has never done before. So what do you think about Horowitz's Watson voice? I feel like that's often a testament of how you judge pastiches is how well he writes what Watson sounds like and also sort of the Victorian speak. I think it's quite good. I think that with this novel, it's a difficult balance of elderly Watson versus Victorian Watson. And I think he strikes it really well. There's a moment Mm -hmm. relatively early on that I like where Watson is talking about his relationship to Holmes. And he says, quote, I have to say that I took immense satisfaction in these moments of quiet sociability and felt myself to be one of the luckiest men in London to have shared in the conversation to which I have just described and to be walking in such a leisurely manner at the side of so great a personage as Sherlock Holmes. What I like about that is that it's both somewhat distant and it's also, you get sort of the nugget of his emotion there that comes mm-hmm. comes through with more emphasis and more emotion in other parts of the stories. And so I, I think this moment is a very sort of like Victorian appropriation of his relationship um, with Holmes and the way that he's going to write it. Whereas when he steps back as elderly Watson, he gets to be a little bit more emotive. Watson contemplating his past relationship. This is just a beautiful line. He writes... I wrote what are now called detective stories. By chance, my detective was the greatest of them all. That's really wonderful. I, what I like up, about yeah, this, so too, lovely. is that I think Horowitz is so aware that he is writing to an audience that loves these characters. There's a certain level of enthusiasm as a reader that you can sort of sense that he is writing with. Totally. Um, there's another moment I really like when Mycroft comes into Baker Street And he says that it's, quote, exactly as I imagined it, even the position of the fire. You sit on the right and your friend on the left, of course. That there's something about that that is so comfy to me. It just feels like it's pulling you into the world of Sherlock Holmes. And Mycroft is this, like, catalyst for the audience to be like, oh, we're back here again. We're back at Baker Street, aren't we? Like, it's not all doom and gloom all the time. There's these nice little gems that are really beautiful. Yeah, at times it's quite heartwarming. It's funny. Since you brought up Mycroft, I think, here's my next question is, there are a couple key cameos of canon characters that come up in this in this story. Mycroft is a big one. Lestrade is in mm-hmm. the story. He plays a, quite a big role. And our friend Percy Trevelyan from The Resident Patient. Which... I I had completely forgotten about this. It's been years since I've read this novel. And so when uh-huh. I revisited it, having recently read The Adventure of the Resident right, Patient, yeah. I was like, Percy Trevelyan! Hey, Percy! <laughs> What's up, man? He has such a better role in this novel than he does in Resident Patient. You see Horowitz speculating on the progression of his career and where he would be going next after the story and he and he helps Holmes in this daring mm-hmm. escape from this um 
a prison, which is really, really cool. Yeah. So it, it very much feels like running into an old friend. Very satisfying cameo. That mm-hmm. was good. Yeah. Moriarty. The other one that we have to talk about is Moriarty. It's interesting. <laughs> Moriarty's appearance in this is, it's great. It's also yeah. very funny. It seems that Moriarty is a deus ex machina. Right. Where he is going to save the day, bring Holmes out of prison. It all comes to nothing. Because Holmes and Percy Trevelyan have their own plan. It's just a great little Easter egg. It's really funny. Mm-hmm. It feels appropriately fitting. Because Moriarty, you know, of course, is like large in the cultural depiction. And then on paper is not really that impressive. Yeah. So I think it, it works quite well. It, like, as a concept, I think this scene. So Watson and Moriarty have like a meal together. It's such an interesting it's a great scene. And I scene. love it so much. Watson agrees to like, accept Moriarty's help and promises that he will never tell Holmes that he's made this introduction. And then, you know, a couple years after this, he's like, oh, well, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> And then I think it's an interesting, it like gives some texture to Moriarty as a character who takes a lot of pride in his villainy and in the intelligence of his villainness and Mm -hmm. is kind of disgusted at these very base villains who are putting a bad name on, you know, what he feels is an art. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like he is, to his credit, disgusted with the House of Silk. It sets up this idea of... Moriarty and Holmes as being similar but opposite morally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it sets that up nicely. So we've talked a lot about, I think, the positives about this story. Is there anything you don't like about the way the plot goes or how it's handled? There is one thing that is a personal pet peeve of mine. And that is in cases, especially in historical fiction set in the 19th century, I would put the alienist also in this category, in which the criminals are pedophiles or child abusers, and they are specifically men who are doing this work. Exactly. Like, cases in which men are abusing boys. Mm -hmm. I always just wish there was a gay man in the story. He doesn't have to be the main character. It doesn't have to be Sherlock Holmes. It doesn't have to be anybody we know. But I do wish that there was just a small little mention of literally any gay person just to prevent the conflation of pedophilia with queerness. This is a specific moment in history when that conflation is being mined and constructed by society in order to demonize queer people. That that continues really today. It frustrates me a little bit that there is no positive portrayal of love between men in stories that, you know, deal with these kinds of atrocities. For a dollar, name one gay person. Having someone to say, like, no, that's not who we are loving lived experience on the other side that has nothing to do with that is important. If people's imaginations are limited to the ways in which queer characters can appear only in certain contexts and stories, yeah, then that is, yeah. you know, yeah, a significant limitation, I think. Well, at the end of the day, the way that Watson writes about Holmes 
is very loving. Yeah. It's very true to, true to the canon, um, but it also expands on it. And I think it's really beautifully done, beautifully executed. I mean, the end of the novel, I won't read the dialogue or the, the passage here because I don't want to, you know, give it away to that degree. But it's very beautiful, the way mm-hmm. that he thinks about Holmes at the very end of the story. Yeah. I mean, that moment that closes mm-hmm. the book is is really heartfelt. It is. And fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, and it's gorgeous. Sweet. It's so good. Yeah, it's really good. So I do want to wrap this up with reading this one little lovely My passage. My favorite line in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a moment when they're investigating, and Watson says, quote, Show Holmes a drop of water, and he would deduce the existence of the Atlantic. Show it to me, and I would look for a tap. That was the difference between us. So that's the House of Silk. Mm-hmm. If you can stomach it, pick it up. It's really Great. good. Yeah. I want to, like, ask Anthony Horowitz some questions, but I do admit he writes a good mystery. He writes a pretty good mystery. And that's our final... <laughs> that's that our final review. On that. <laughs> pretty good. Join us next week for our narration of the adventure of the Regate Squire. You can send your thoughts to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at improbablepod. Our, our website is howeverimprobablepodcast.com where you can find transcripts, the research behind the episode, and suggestions for further reading. We would love to know if you love this book, if you hated this book. What other books you want us to read, whether pastiches are your favorites. If you're enjoying the show and whatever else we got going on here, <laughs> you can spare a moment, please rate and review. However Improbable is created by Marissa Mercurio and Sarah Kolb, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours.